This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Super duper excited about this show, as always, because we have not only the uh, New York Times bestselling author and writer and history buff and someone who will teach you how to do the research the right way, but also my very dear friend, Rita Mae Brown, is joining us for the show today. So we're going to talk to Rita Mae a little bit about her uh, latest book, Lost and Hound. Can I get that right? So Lost and Hound, talked a little bit about the uh, trials and tribulations and the drama and the mystery and all the wonderful things that goes into the novel. And uh, we'll talk to her also a little bit about writing in general and what she's seen out there today and how her craft is uh, the same, changed, or somewhere in the middle compared to where it was when she first started producing these wonderful novels. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Joining me now is the New York Times bestselling author, my dear friend, Rita Mae Brown. Rita Mae, welcome back to the show. Well, it's good to be on and it's good to hear your voice. Oh, it's good to be here, alive and breathing and things are good. Well, they are. And I mean, you and I always have fun because, of course, we both love animals. And this book, it takes quite a twist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, a lot of twists and turns in the book. You always keep it interesting, and I'm uh, I'm always excited to learn about you know some of the uh, players that reappear and some new ones and what the new twist is. And since you're asking me about my book, I will talk about it. It really starts with Sister Jane, the master of foxhounds, and some of her friends going out in a wildfire field that Sister has let go back into milkweeds to see you know does this work? Will it help with the monarch butterflies and the bees and all this and that? And it's late fall, so, of course, the monarchs are, are leaving, and it, it has helped. So they're all trying to figure out ways to be more environmentally conscious, which I think is really one of the wonderful things about young people, is they are. I mean, and I think they're forcing all of us to pay more attention. So, you know, it starts, it's kind of gentle and all this and that, and then odd things happen, like somebody's stamp collection gets stolen. Why are you doing that? They aren't even valuable stamps. One of the Hunt Club members, and there's just peculiar stuff. And, of course, it turns out that the stamps are a real clue to what's really going on. And I just had the most fun tying all this up together. And I have a new character in here that I am just crazy about. And his name is J. Edgar Hoover, and he's a turtle. <laughs> I love that. you got to put a pause in there. It's J. Edgar Hoover. People, uh, history buffs know, know the history behind that name, and then all of a sudden, it's a turtle. <laughs> you have to look at a turtle's face. I mean, that's, that's why sister 
calls him J. Edgar. But anyway, he doesn't get his name really until close to the end. But he's crossing the road, and it's rainy, and he's confused, and they're coming back from a hunt. So sister stops the truck and the trailer, and her best friend and uh, whipper in jumps out and picks up the turtle and puts it in the car and saves it. And this also becomes a real clue. I had so much fun. I mean, I get paid to do this. It just amazes me. <laughs> Obviously, the talent and the skill is there, too. But I, I love how when you present a new character into it, one of the many, many things I love about reading your books is we take an animal, and, and there's a great storyline and a great plot, some wonderful twists and turns in there, which make it you know extremely entertaining. But also, it always makes me stop and remember back. So, for instance, the turtle. When we start to introduce the turtle into the uh, book, uh, into the novel, I reflect back to how many turtles I've rescued from the road. And, yeah, way too many. How and, you know, The wife making me stop in the middle of the road and, and fighting traffic to get these turtles. And one in particular was this. We had a really bad rainstorm, and there was some uh, home developments going on in our near our neighborhood. And so it made it really you know soupy and sloshy, and it brought out the turtles. And in particular, right in the middle of our road was a snapping turtle. And oh his shell, oh yeah, his shell was about as big as a, you know, a sewer drain, you know, the, uh, the cover for the sewer. But I got out there and I positioned myself. I knew about snapping turtles. I had to be careful. I knew how to, you know, grab them towards the back. Don't let them whip around and get you. Well, you tell yourself all this, you know, pretending you're an expert and remembering back what your dad <laughs> used to tell you. But once you pick it up and that sucker starts hissing at you and snapping at you, yeah, let's just say that uh, snapping turtle ended up being a giant frisbee into the grass by the time I was done with it. <laughs> no, but they are actually quite, I mean, they can bite through your bones. Those yes, they can. Oh my gosh, it was it was it was terrifying. I felt great afterwards. He survived. He you know he just looked back at me and and you know snickered I think at me and then took you know walked his merry way. But you know at the time I'm like I, I, I you know I'm an old pro at this. I know how to do this. Yeah, until you get in the middle of it, you don't really know. And that's what your books you know and the characters bring to mind these things that that come about. Well, bringing this up that you stop for turtles. I wonder how many people listening to you also stop for turtles. Maybe not snappers, but little pretty box turtles and this and that. You know, the stuff we save is amazing. And it always turns out okay. I mean, assuming they're not, you know, so damaged they can't be saved. But usually you can. But yeah. I, I had fun with this again because we tend to look down at reptiles. We think they're not intelligent. But you know, Tim, they are. And I've said this to you before. Anything alive is a survivor. Anything alive is intelligent because the dumb ones are dead. The dumb ones have become extinct. You know, and it wasn't all just meteors. Whatever it was, they couldn't adjust. So everything on the face of the earth right now is really a winner. And you're right. The turtles have been around for ever. You know, uh, and uh, people do look down upon and think it's you know silly slow turtle. Why are you doing in the middle of the road? They're a survivor. Well, they can chirp at you. They're really interesting animals in that they know who you are. I mean, if you're their person, they're not, I would say, warm and cuddly. They like to be alone. They don't need to have another turtle. But once they get to know you, they'll follow you around the house. I mean, they're not without curiosity. But J. Edgar, he's not a main character, but he's really important. And of course, at the end, she keeps him. So she's going to be with her, with her forever. 
But that and the damn stamp collection, because what do stamps and turtles have to do together? Well, they actually have a lot to do together in the book. But the first way you look at stamps in this is, of course, they've been stolen, but they aren't the valuable ones. And I've got to say this. I have to thank somebody who's no longer alive, an actor called Ernest Borgnine. Mm. He and his wife, Tuva, and she's just recently passed, were very kind to me when I came to L.A. and started writing. And he was an avid stamp collector. And I would sit next to him, and he would show me these gorgeous stamps. I mean, they're works of art. They really are. And I often wonder now that he's not with us, what happened to that incredible stamp collection? Well, anyway, it was thinking about Mr. Borgnine, and I thought, you know, maybe I could use stamps. And first you use them in the common way, like, well, yeah, somebody could pay somebody else off with stamps if they were really valuable. But the ones that were taken weren't really valuable. So I, I had a good time, and I'm sorry he's not here to read it, because I think we'd give him a kick. But, you, you know, it's amazing how many people are stamp collectors, and it takes a lot of effort to do it correctly. And you have to, you know, preserve them and this and that. I don't know if you've ever collected stamps. I haven't. But they're beautiful. Yeah, they are. I, I have not been a stamp collector, but I tell you, a very sad story. My father-in-law, my late father-in-law, he was a stamp collector, and he had this uh, brilliant set. I don't know if any of them were really worth you know, the high value, like you had mentioned, but it was very important to him because he collected them most of his life. Unfortunately, he got caught up in a hurricane and then a flood. You know, one of the things we talked about was, and we know that you are an avid fox hunter, and you've been doing this for years, and you roll it into the novels and everything that uh, Sister Jane Arnold's doing. Tell us a little bit more about not only how that applies, continues to apply to the novel, but also a little bit about what it is, because I think there's a lot of misnomers about what it is and what it isn't. Well, yeah, they're, I mean, there are people, there are more city people and suburban people than when I was a kid, obviously. We're 90% city and suburban and 10% rural now. But you don't kill them. It's not, I mean, people that are against it show footage of old English hunts killing foxes. We don't do that. We just chase them. And I love it because, uh, and I think most of us who do it feel this way, we get a terrific sense of wildlife in our area. What's healthy, what isn't? because sometimes you will see a disease before the actual wildlife people will. Because remember, Tim, it's not like hiking. When I'm hunting, I might cover 20 or 30 miles. You can go a far distance and come back. Generally, you don't. I mean, generally, the most anybody's going to cover in any one hunt would be 15 or 20 miles, and that'd be like two, two and a half hours. But you see a lot, and you're also higher up than you are if you're walking. So you see more in that respect. So we're... I think we're all very environmentally conscious. We care greatly about wildlife, and um, most of us chip in in one way or the other. I just gave a speech up at Green Spring Valley, which is a fabulous hunt club. It was my mother's hunt club, and it was about it was for the wildlife thing there, which I think is called Maryland Association for Wildlife Conservation. I hope I have that right. But the room was full. There was a representative from almost every hunt club in Maryland because that's how important it is to people. And we also recognize, unfortunately, so many people that are, again, suburban or, or urban have a kind of Disney version of how wildlife works. And it's not that way. Nature can be cruel. I mean, let's just lay it out there. But so can people. I mean, obviously, look at what's going on in the Mideast and Ukraine. I mean, we, we, we can do a pretty good job of being cruel ourselves. But in the main, if you do take care of animals, you allow their pathways, you know, 
roads have changed a lot about how animals can move from point A to point B. If you put those, I don't know, what do you call them, Tim? You've seen them, those walkways that go over the highways yeah, that animals yeah. can use. Things like yeah. that. I mean, we, we can help. Yeah, you know, those are just, you know, you see them on TV or in the news, but see one in person, it, it's quite amazing. And, and like you said, it seems so simplistic, you know, especially since we have so many old railways, we have so many overpasses and things of this sort why that are not being used anymore. Why not secure them a little bit better and make them a nice green green pathway? You know, that's a great idea. That is really a great idea. I think we can coexist with other animals. I don't think we have to be afraid of bear. Just leave them alone, basically. Stuff like that. Once you learn an animal's habitat, and it's what I say, it's way of going, but what it needs, what it eats, when it breeds, all this kind of stuff, you can be helpful or you can stay out of the way, which is probably the most helpful thing any of us can do. But those of us out there fox hunting or beagling or basseting, you know, people that are, are, are running on foot with packs of hounds, really are very close to what's going on. And I listen. When somebody tells me something, I do listen. One of the things we can do here, which is exciting, which you probably don't get to see where you are, I'm on the pathway for a lot of migrations from the far north, and Canada down to Mexico, the south, wherever. And there's, I guess you would call it wind tunnels. I'm, I, that may not be the correct word, but I'm right by the Blue Ridge Mountains. I mean, it's my backyard, basically. Wow. And they, they get here to Virginia, and they rest in these tunnels, which just sort they can just laze around and laze around while they gather their power to continue their migration. And during the migratory periods, we've got Japanese people because they're, you know, they're passionate birders, so many of the Japanese. And they're up there on the Blue Ridge, you know, with their binoculars and also other people, Americans, that care about it. It's fantastic when you see what animals really do. And I'm just lucky to be in a place where I can do it, and I'm lucky to, to care about it. But I really credit this to fox hunting, which has so intensified my uh, knowledge about other species and my desire to preserve them. I love that. And I still remember the story, and you'll have to correct me if I get any of this wrong, is uh, one of the fox that was uh, an older statesman in your area on your property who used to collect all the uh, little toys and items and trinkets around. And then years later, after he made his transition, uh, tell us what you found. Well, I hadn't seen him in a while, and I knew he was really old. He wouldn't give us, uh, he would give us shorter and shorter chases the older he got. (laughs) He was no (laughs) fool, obviously. I mean, they really are smart as a fox. So, you know, one year, I just didn't see him. I thought, oh, dear, oh, dear. All of the toys that he took from my dogs that they had dropped in the yard. (laughs) I mean, he just stashed everything, and I thought, my God, you know, they are funnier than we think. And for whatever reason, he he really liked rubber balls, and he liked anything you could chew. Oh, a lot oh of gosh. stuff in there. They're acquisitive. Yeah, I always love that story. And our um, our smallest schnauzer, who's a little over ten pounds, 
she rules the roost and her brother, who's 22 pounds, he knows that if he's going to get a toy, he's got to do two things. He's got to sneak up on it and get it and then run as fast as he can to his den, as I call it, which is one of his many, many beds he's got laying around the house. That always reminds me of that story when you told me about that. Cause I'm like, Oh, there goes Kramer. He's run to his den. He's got his toys run to his den. You know, it's interesting uh, that, that you bring up house dogs. You would think that house dogs and foxes would be enemies. They're really not. I mean, carriers, but carriers are bred to chase anything. You know, they're bred to go down and get badgers, whatever it is. But in the main part, dogs don't really bother foxes. But foxes and cats hate one another. And as a kitty, so why is that? I mean, why is a cat carrying on out there, you know, like sin? Well, it finally dawned on me, slowly, as in slowly the Ice Age ended, that um, they hunt the same game. Uh, of course they're going to be enemies. That's very interesting. I never thought of that. that is and if you ex- watch them, they hunt in the same manner. They crouch down, they crawl, they are very still, they wait, they have tremendous patience. They use the same tactics. I never Nature thought about is. it that way. Today in the latest book, Lost and Hound, you know, I always, I always love the, the cover, you know, the, the artwork in your books always has fantastic artwork. So I'll, I'll give kudos to your, uh, your team for putting that together. But on this particular book, it uh, has a nice uh, setting with monarch butterflies. Oh, and love nice monarch. Yeah, well, I love monarch butterflies. Uh, my wife and I always uh, try to take care of them. And, but I will tell you a real quick story for this year. So year before last. We have a beautiful backyard, all kinds of different plants. We've got milkweed around, and we've got a big, on the other side of the um, the property, has a huge wild field that the owner of that particular piece of land, he just lets it grow. So it has all kinds of you know, places for, uh, for animals to find food and shelter. We have fox that come through there, of course, coyote every once in a while, deer, you know, all kinds of different animals. But two years ago, our monarchs showed up late, and our milk weight was almost gone. We managed to take one of them and allow it to find enough milkweed to eat and then to cocoon and then to hatch, which was brilliant. But we were on the phone and on the internet trying to find milkweed. And, and for those of you that love monarchs, you know that they are very, very particular eaters. There's only certain strands of the milkweed that they'll eat in certain types where other butterflies aren't as particular. So last year, we managed to uh, help one hatch and uh, leave its merry way. We scavenged enough milkweed to have some on hand just in case. And lo and behold, some that got shipped to us had one small caterpillar on it, and it was a monarch. So we had our second one for the year, and that was it. And so this year we thought, okay, we're going to be smart about it. We're going to plant extra milkweed, the kind they like. And we're going to plant it everywhere in our backyard. And then we're going to watch all the beautiful butterflies, but in particular, our favorite, the monarch. You know, well, this year we got got one. (laughs) We got one to visit us. We had all this wonderful milkweed. Now we got, you know, we got viceroys and, and swallowtails and, you know, all these skippers and all these other wonderful butterflies. So it didn't go to waste, but we were just anticipating, you know, a plethora of uh, well, monarchs. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe you got to get on the monarch internet so they know it. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I need to broadcast a little bit louder saying, come and get this stuff. I never know. I mean, I've had years where I've had, I could barely see for the butterflies, all of them. Black swallowtails, yellow swallowtails, and luna moth, stuff like that, beautiful stuff. And then you have other years where it's just not, nothing's really happening. I don't know if it's droughts. 
I don't know if it's the food supply. I really don't. I wish I did. And I don't know if anybody does, but, you know, maybe those that are scientific do. But while I've got you on the phone, because you mentioned the drawings in the books, the, the frontispiece, those are done by one of the best hound men I've ever known, a man called Lee Gildy, who for years hunted with Keswick, which is a hunt in, in uh, Virginia, right next to my hunt, really. And he's got such a sensitive touch, and he understands all these things. But every now and then he'll draw the water wheel, because I, I have a, a fixture in all of my books called Mill Ruins, and it's the water wheel near his house. All these things that he draws are actually what we have in my territory. But I am just surrounded by talent. I mean, talking about butterflies and birds, uh, Jennifer Ackerman, the woman in Fredericksburg who wrote these fantastic books about birds and gets on the bestseller list. She just wrote one about owls for whatever reason. Barbara King solvers in Virginia. We seem to have a fair amount of Virginians that really care about the environment and are doing what they can. And I'm discussing the writers, of course, but there's lots of people. And, I mean, I know that there are people like this in every state. I just think we've got to get better organized. We do. I mean, just, like, look how long it took us to really get the ball rolling for no-kill animal shelters. Mm-hmm. Now, we still have kill animal shelters, but we have made a real effort all across the nation to promote no-kills, and it's worked. Yeah, it does take a conservative effort. You got to get everybody involved. Of course, there's the you know, the political aspects of it as well that you got to get uh, you know uh, the right climate and the right ear to listen. But you, you don't know until you know you got to try, and that's the key. And I've always found you know with working as a president of a humane society as in working with rescues across the the world, everybody has that common idea and that common belief, but getting them to paddle. At the same time, you know, you talk about your great paddle yep. wheel, you know, uh, to get them to realize we've got to work as a collective to get this done and not just focus on our particular efforts that we have for our particular, you know, rescue organization, which you have to keep an eye on. You know, the grassroots movements are equally important, but if you're going to get a major initiative in place like uh, No Kill Cross America, we'll say, then everybody's got to be, uh, you know, paddling at the same, uh, in the same direction. Well, that, that is the truth. There's a character in this book who's a real human being, and, uh, and I cite him as such, Ed Clark, who started the Wildlife Center of Virginia, who's taught me an enormous amount. And uh, he's, you know, he's a celebrity. He's like, he, they even brought him to Russia to talk about wildlife, and he goes to South Africa twice a year and, you know, gives lectures, and I don't want to say safari, that's kind of... But he does. I mean, he takes people out and shows them stuff. Well, he fox hunts with me. And you get close to people when you fox hunt because you're risking your neck together. I mean, that's one of those people who has the gift, who's charismatic, who stands up and talks and you listen, who's been able to get people to care about wildlife. And all across our country, Tim, there are people like that, or like you with your radio show that you point out animals and what we can do and what we all share together. Then you'll have births where you know when Westminster comes up, okay, there's going to be a real focus on dogs. You can, you can get some stuff done then. So we have that, and I actually think as a country we're getting better and better about these things. I don't want to get real political here. <laughs> we have people to the left of Pluto and people to the right of Genghis Khan. <laughs> and then most of us in the middle, right? Okay, I mean, I'm one of those real boring people in the middle. I just want to get the potholes fixed. I think Chip <laughs> O'Neill was right. But I look at this and I think, 
how are we going to get back together? We're going to get back together through things we care about, through our hobbies and our passions. I think wildlife is one of those things. Mm -hmm. I see what fox hunters have been able to do politically. You would think this small group of people. We've been able to do a lot to help animals. Um, And we've been able to do a lot to help break the rabies cycle in wildlife. Um, And I, I mean, I won't go into all of that, but if I can trap foxes, I can, and the state of Virginia has certain veterinarians that are allowed to work with wildlife. Not every vet is allowed to do that, which I hope we can weaken that somehow so more and more people can do it. Because I've got to go 50 miles to get to a wildlife vet. But if I can trap a fox, I get them all the shots. And I'm not the only master of fox hounds that does that. Because we want to try to break the rabies cycle in the rabies reservoir. And with foxes, we've been pretty good at it. Just things like that that you wouldn't know, the little things that people can do that make a difference. And I don't know about you, and, and I mean, you probably know a lot more about this than myself, why there is now a movement to not get your dog's rabies shots. You know, I, th- I think a big part of that is also the, the sort of unknown. So first of all, we got this commentary, you know, this somebody's putting out this nonsense that's not important and how, it, you know, it's like any other vaccine. It's actually going to cause more damage than, than it will help. And even though most states say you have to get, you know, your dogs and cats rabies shots, some people still don't. There's also this, you know, understanding or misunderstanding of, you know, what is the rabies shot? Do you need a yearly one? What is the three-year rabies shot? Will it last three years? And if so, is it three times the potency, which it's not? So I think there's it's really just education for the most part and for people to put away the nonsense, you know, all, all the, um, the fiction that's out there about it. And, um, yeah, it's a sad thing because you definitely don't want to see any animal, whether it's uh, your domesticated animal or a wild animal get into that situation oh, and, a and I, way to die. it's terrible it's terrible and, you know and, it, and the interesting thing about it also is you know i hear people that especially with uh, say felines you know they have their domesticated cat and they say well my cat never goes outside or, or if it does it goes you know right on the front porch well guess what it only takes one encounter it only takes one uh situation where you know the rabies uh, virus can get picked up and uh so why not be safe you know, that's what mom always said, be safe than sorry. So why not? Why not do right. it? Right. Zora Neale first and used uh, rabies in their eyes were watching God. I hope I said all that correctly. Um, <laughs> a reader, you know, and then 10 years will go back, and I'll pick it back up and reread everything. But what an extraordinary writer. But I can't think of too many writers that have used rabies. I mean, I did in one of the mysteries years ago, but that's not the same. But it's a spirochete disease. Lyme, syphilis, and rabies are all spirochetes. So once it's in your system, it never gets out. You can stop it, but it never gets out. And for what it's worth, I've had my rabies shots because, like your mother said, I'm better safe than sorry. I'm out there all the time. I'm around wildlife. I don't think somebody's going to jump on me and bite me. But what if I had a cut on my hand? One of my dogs had the saliva on them. You can get it from the saliva. Exactly. And, you know, I got it in, in my cup. Well, I, I would get rabies. So I've had my rabies shots, and I get tested for my titers, you know, so if I need an update or whatever. And it wasn't awful. People say it's awful. It really wasn't awful. There's stuff out there. We still don't know enough about it. We know it's always out there. We know there is a reservoir, particularly in skunks and raccoons. 
and things like that, the sort of medium-sized mammals. It doesn't mean the larger ones can't get it, but usually it's the more medium-sized ones. It seems to be the greater numbers. You just can't toss it off. I mean, maybe if you're living in the suburbs and city, you can think you're safe. But I don't know. They come in for your garbage. You definitely take notice when you uh, walk out, walk your dog outside, and, and right behind the fence, you hear some rustling, and it's a fox. And like you mentioned earlier, it's not necessarily that cute little fox you see in the Disney shows. You know, they're pretty healthy animals. We'll just put it that way. Beautiful, beautiful. But it, yeah, you take a step back, and it's right there in your backyard. So you never know what you're going to encounter, especially as we continue to encroach upon their land and build our wonderful homes and cities and, and you know shopping centers and whatever else we build they got to have a place to go and guess what they're going to come back into suburbia and uh if you've never seen a fox well give it time you you probably will well they're gorgeous they'll take your breath away but leave them alone what i do is i put out kibble and i put ivermec and stuff like that on the kibble to get rid of the parasite loads and i have to stop right now because they're beginning mating and if you you know if you do ivermec well, it'll kill the babies so now I can't do it again really until about, uh, well, really August, and I can start doing it again. But I do put the kibble out just to kind of give them something to eat. My garbage wouldn't interest them. Usually <laughs> <laughs> cottage cheese and Coca-Cola, but at any rate, um, they're very clever. I mean, they figure things out. It's the canine mind. It's not that different from your house dog. It's just undomesticated. There you go. There you go. Well, so, you think how smart your dog is. Well, the fox is probably smarter because the fox has to deal with more challenges every day. And they take your dog's toys. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that that's what you remember. But I've come upon some of the silliest stuff. Just, uh, I have a fox that sardine. I mean, we're now in the fourth generation of sardines, children's sardines, has gone to her reward. They will never, ever give me a run. They live behind my barn. My barn! I mean, how cheeky is that? <laughs> and, and I go out, and if I don't have the house dogs with me and I take a walk, usually one or two of them will walk not very far from me. So I know they're there, but they're just watching. They're curious. They want to know what I'm doing. But if I walk out the house in my hunt kit, you know, like I've got my boots and all that on, I'm ready to go, they don't show their face. How smart they are. Yeah, they they know when you're in, in serious mode. So yeah, <laughs> otherwise, they don't pay attention to you, especially if you're having cottage cheese and Coca-Colas. That's it. <laughs> I know. And, I mean, but how smart are all of these things? I mean, it's one of the reasons you and I have such a good time in our lives. You take a squirrel, an ordinary squirrel. An ordinary squirrel has figured out how to get in your roof if it needs to, how to steal the bird seed that you put out there, you know, all these kind of things. And you look at here, here's this, essentially a rodent, really. I mean, an adorable rodent. But they get what they need. Yeah, they're crafty, you know, and they, they are interesting because when you see them, you know, like trying to cross the road, you know, why is this stupid squirrel going halfway out and then turning around, then going back and coming around? You think they don't have a lick of sense. But yeah, they know what they're doing. And they, especially when it comes to food, they're so resourceful that uh, you can't outsmart them. There's no way. Well, speaking of food, you know, what is it? McDonald's has spent eight years trying to redo its burgers. I bet you that a good, <laughs> some of these wild animals will get them before you and I do. <laughs> well, they can have all my McDonald's burgers they want to have. That's all I guess. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of burgers, I had my opening hunt. I try to have it the closest day to, to a St. Hubert's Day, the patron state of hunting. 
and um, sometimes I will put opening hunts in the Sister Janes, depending on you know what time of the season I'm writing about her and the, and the, the her friends. But this year I. And usually I don't get anything going. It's like a big, beautiful parade, but I don't really get a lot of hunting going. There's just too much going on. And lately it's been too hot the last couple of years. This year I actually got a good hunt at the end, not the beginning. I mean, I was working my butt off trying to get any kind of set. Well, my hounds were. Anyway, they did. They finally got it. And there's a convenience store at the end of this route, six. I think it's 653, by God, if they didn't head for this convenience store, <laughs> I was terrified. Somebody was going to open the doors if they got that far, and all my hounds are going to go in there and want sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that happens when you fox hunt, you can't make it up. It's too funny. Fortunately, the fox turned, and they didn't go that way. But I don't know. I'm really glad my dogs don't have credit cards. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You're kidding. <laughs> Can you uh, imagine what your snouser would buy? They're so smart. They know what I'm saying in general. They, you know, that we could talk to our animals and they know exactly what we're talking about. We also know certain keywords, you know, from our training techniques of our, of our dogs. You know, set, stay, lay, leave it. These type of things. One of the keywords my dogs have is Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> That is so great. Oh, they know what they know what Starbucks is. They know what the drive-through is. They know uh, <laughs> they know really even what time of day because usually around eleven thirty ish or so is our you know give or take a little bit depending on what we're doing. That's uh, the uh, daily Starbucks run, and so they start getting you know, about eleven o'clock. They'll come over, tap me on the leg, and say, "Hey, is it time for our Starbucks? Let's get going." <laughs> <laughs> Who trains who, Tim? Uh, you got it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've learned a long time ago. Well, you know, Reed May Brown, you know, it's wonderful talking to you again. And uh, the latest book's Lost and Hound. Let me ask you real quick. I always ask, or try to wrap up with this, but the series is, you know, been going on for a long time, and they're all just fabulous. And you could pick up this copy of Lost and Hound, you know, the Sister Jane Arnold's uh, series. You can pick up this one, and you won't miss out on anything. If you want to go back to the beginning, you have a wonderful collection. What do you hope to accomplish? What I mean, do you have any walkaways when this book is, in particular, Lost and Hound, is completed that you say, I think I've done a good job here. If the reader's getting this out of, of what I'm putting down, what is that one thing? Well, for this particular book, I did want to alert them to this immensely profitable illegal activity that you would never, ever think of, which is, you know, what it's about, ultimately. But I hope with any of the Sister Janes to let people join on the hunt, feel the thrill, recognize what it is to work with animals that closely, and also to have a real respect for wildlife. I hope people will try to preserve it, and I just hope we can come together on the things that really matter. I mean, I know it's going to be a presidential election year in 2024, but it doesn't float my boat, but this does. I mean, I really care about animals, and I'm so pleased that people are beginning to wake up and realize we are not the only sentient beings on the planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. So everybody go out and check out all the wildlife. Take a, take a walk in nature and by all means, put your uh, cell phones, your, your mobile devices down before you go out. That I think that's the key. Get in touch with nature. So I think that's a brilliant, brilliant way to look at it. The only other thing I can say real quick is I have a chihuahua in this book. I've never used a chihuahua before. Karen Slaughter has used a chihuahua in her work brilliantly. She's such a good writer. This stuff is scary as hell. But anyway, so there's this little chihuahua called Atlas 
and I don't know. I just, you know, they're so lovable. I mean, they really are. I wish I could write about every dog there is and every cat or whatever, but whatever your listener has sitting in their lap or at their feet, how lucky you are to have such a devoted friend. Yep, they're always there to greet you, no matter if you just walked out the door to get the uh, the post, you know, to get the mail or the newspaper, or whether you uh, were gone for uh, you know most of the day. They're always there with that same fantastic greeting. And uh, I know with mine, uh, it's kissy time when I get home. I, you know, I, I, went, I will tell a quick story. <laughs> so today I, I went to the grocery store and got some stuff, brought it back. And I had two options as I pulled into the garage and put the garage door down. I could either A, start to unload the car and try to maneuver around the dogs, or B, go to the doorway where the dogs are, open the door, lean down, and get all my wonderful kisses, and then go get the groceries. And we know which one of those always happens. Well, just for your listeners, I have met your wife. So I think when you get home, there's also kissy time. <laughs> well, that's our midnight show if we want to tune back in. <laughs> and I know, Tim, you're like every man out there listening. You married her for her mind. Absolutely. And she's got a brilliant, brilliant mind. <laughs> well, well, you know what? I think ultimately men do really look at the bigger picture. But that first look is what gets you, honey. Oh, it, it was uh, that way. It really was. That and her Jordache jeans. I'll just leave it at that. That's all <laughs> I got to say. <laughs> Definitely well, dating myself with that reference. But yeah, there you, you get the picture. It's okay. Like I said, I've seen your wife. So <laughs> lucky you, lucky her. Abs- yeah, that's right. Lucky me. I don't know how it happened. I fooled her, I guess. But yeah, it worked out all right for me. All right, my friend. Well, everybody go out and pick up a copy of the book. It's uh, from our wonderful, wonderful Rita Mae Brown. It's Lost and Hound. You're going to love it. Love getting in touch with all the wildlife and all the uh, mysteries that go behind it. And Rita Mae, it's always, always, always wonderful talking to you. And I'll look forward to chatting with you again uh, real soon. Okay. Take care, Tim. Well, we're coming to the end of the show today. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank the producers and sponsors for making this show possible. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, uh, you can go to PetLifeRadio.com. And we'll be glad to answer your questions and entertain your comments and bring on the people you want to hear from most. And while you're there, check out all the other wonderful shows and hosts of Pet Life Radio. It's PetLifeRadio.com. So until next time, write a great stories about the animals in your life, and who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.